You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Happy Father's Day. As we turn into our scriptures, Psalm 128 this morning, we looked at Psalm 127 on Mother's Day. Today we look at Psalm 128, its companion text. Thank you, Adam, praise team, musicians for leading us, worship, preparing us for worship through the preaching of God's Word as we continue to behold uh, the faithfulness of our, our triune God. Well, let's pray before we get into our passage. Father, we do confess, great is your faithfulness. We know this supremely through the Son of God. By his person, his, his life, his death, taking, absorbing the, uh, the wrath that we deserve on our sin, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension to your right hand where he sits in session and rules by his word and spirit. Lord, we also want to thank you for your faithfulness in giving us dads. We're grateful for our dads this morning. And we're grateful for the examples of our dads and the, what we learned from our dads. We're also grateful, Lord, for the gospel because there's no perfect dad except one. There's one perfect father, and we come to you this morning as the perfect father. But for those who are not perfect, all other dads, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that, that covers our guilt our sins for those who would trust in your provision in Jesus Christ. And Father, we do pray for those today, especially our fathers who many of them perhaps are hurting today. Maybe they've lost their, their spouse or they've lost a child or maybe they have a lost child. Father, whatever their need is today, I pray your grace would come in a tailor-made way to meet them at their point of need through the mediation of the Son of God. And Father, we pray now as we look at this passage on the family that you would challenge us, you would encourage us, you would convict us where it's needed. Lord, most importantly, you would build our faith in your, your Savior, your Redeemer that we just sang about, the one that you sent to, to save us from our sins. And we pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified in the stewardship of this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. 18th century theologian and pastor, Jonathan Edwards, and his wife, Sarah, had 11 children. And it was his uh, family discipline, his habit, every night he would speak one hour about the things of God to his children. And then he would pray over each one of them individually. Jonathan Edwards and his wife, for that matter, had a deep-seated fear of God, and they wanted to pass that legacy on to their children, and they did. About 150 years after his death, educator A.E. Winship traced Edwards' descendants, and his findings are remarkable especially when compared to another man who lived during the same time as 
as Jonathan Edwards. His name was Max Jukes. Here's Edwards' legacy. One U.S. vice president, one dean of law school, one dean of a medical school, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professors, 75 military officers, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 100 preachers, 285 college graduates. Max Duke's legacy came to people's attention when <clears throat> family trees of 40 different prisoners in the New York prison system were traced back to him. The Jukes family was studied by sociologist Richard Dugdale in 1877. Jukes' descendants included seven murderers, 60 thieves, 190 prostitutes, 150 convicts, 310 paupers, and 440 alcoholics. These contrasting legacies are examples of what's been called the five-generation rule. How a child or how a parent raises a child generally influences not just that child, but four generations to follow. Five generations in all. Of course, most families are not as ungodly as the Duke's family in his line, nor are most families as successful as Edward's family tree. And that's not to say that just because Edward's family tree were all largely successful that they were all godly. We're not saying that. Moreover, there are godly parents, really godly parents, who have wayward children and vice versa. But it is a general truism that as the parents go, so go the kids. A general truism. And as Psalm 128 tells us, as dad goes, the impact on the family and the culture, for that, for that matter, is, is astronomical. Psalm 128 is one of the Psalms of Ascent. The Hebrew word is Aliyah. Today, if you go to Israel, you hear about Jews who are making their descent back to, to Jerusalem, the Aliyah. Uh, these were the Psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 that were sung as they made their pilgrimage to the three major festivals each year. Uh, on Mother's Day, we saw that Psalm 127 centered on really what was at the heart of the godly family, that is the, the house. And the house is a metaphor that, that represents Every good endeavor, it represents the family and also represents corporate worship in the people of God. It was on their hearts, and they would have sung that. Well, the contents of Psalm 128 would have been on their hearts as well because it centers on what every human heart has been hardware for, and that is the blessing, 
the blessing of God. That's why when someone sneezes, you'll hear someone say, bless you. Or if someone prospers in some way, that person is blessed. Our hearts have been hardwired for blessing. Well, Psalm 127 ended with blessed is the man. We saw that in verse 5 of Psalm 127, blessed is the man. And now Psalm 128 picks this up and fills out that description. And the first thing we see in this passage is the blessed life, the blessed life of this man. Look with me in verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Now, everyone tells us this isn't just specifically referring to men or fathers, but as you go on, it speaks about wives and children. So the specific application is fathers, but it's also true of everyone. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Well, the psalmist is telling us something up front that our world, our flesh, and the devil deny. And that is this, the Lord is the source of all blessing. If you seek blessing outside of God's mediation, it's a curse costumed as a blessing. And why is that? Well, God is the blessed God. Paul loves to describe the triune God as the blessed God. Just a couple of examples. 1 Timothy 1, he is the blessed God. Verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 11. Or chapter 6, verse 15 of 1 Timothy, he is the blessed God. Essentially, that means that God is a happy God. He is a happy God. Each person of the Godhead is happy in the other persons of the Godhead. The Father is happy in the Son and the Spirit. The Son is happy in the Father and the Spirit. The, the Spirit is happy in the Father and the Son. Indeed, a big aspect of God's glory is He is blessed. He is a happy God. And so after Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6.15 that He is the blessed God, the happy God, he tells us in verse 17, just two verses later, he richly provides us everything to enjoy. And so if God isn't happy or God isn't blessed, he can't be the source of happiness. But he is because he is the blessed God. And one of our biggest problems is believing that we can find blessing outside of him. Now, what is this blessing that the psalmist is speaking of here. Well, what is the opposite in Scripture of blessing? It's curse. In fact, the first time we see that God blessed humanity is in Genesis 1. After he describes us as his image bearers, he created male and female. He blessed them, and then he gave us our marching orders. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Take dominion and rule. And so he blessed us. And yet sin entered the world, and, and with sin came curse on everything that was created. And so the, the opposite of blessing is curse. And so when the psalmist says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, he's speaking about essentially the reversal of the curse. Now, indeed, Genesis 1 speaks about God the creator blessing. 
But in Genesis 12, we see that it will be through the seed of Abraham that all the nations will be blessed. That is God the Redeemer blessing us. And that's the blessing that is promised here. It's the, the promise of the blessing of the reversal of the curse. It's to enjoy a taste of restored Eden. That's the blessing. In fact, the last word of the Old Testament could be translated cursed or destruction in Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. And what is the first words that Jesus speaks in the first book of the New Testament? In Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus has come to reverse the curse. Now, in Psalm 127, uh, Saul or Solomon emphasizes that all blessings are due to God alone. But here, Psalm 128 reminds us that there are nevertheless conditions on our part. And what are the conditions? Note them. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Now, we understand, and that's another sermon for another day, that even our capacity to fear God is a blessing of grace. But nevertheless, there is conditions laid here on those who are to be blessed. Blessed are those who fear the Lord and walk in his ways. To fear the Lord is to, is to rejoice and tremble. As Isaac Watts described it, it's a reverence. It, it, it's an awe. It's to fear God as creator. It's to fear him as redeemer. It, it's the continuous awareness that I'm in the presence of a holy, almighty God and redeemer through his son. And that every word, deed, thought or action is open before him and will be judged by him. And out of that is the fruit of walking in his ways. In other words, the fear of God produces obedience. The obedience to God, the obedience of faith, it's not to earn God's favor, it's because we have it in Jesus. The obedience of faith proves the fear of God. They, are all, they always travel together. And so it's to reverence God's person as he is revealed to us in Scripture. It's to reverence him as the triune God. It's to muse on what the Scripture has revealed about him, his attributes, his names, the images of God. It's to muse on his works. In other words, your fear grows as you learn about him through the Scriptures. The one who fears God also walks in his ways. And that means to reverence God's word. You can't know his ways apart from his God's, uh, God's word. And the third, the one who fears the Lord knows he will stand before him and give an account. Fourteen times in the Bible, it tells us that we're going to give an account for our deeds done in the body. The one who fears God knows there is a recompense coming in the day of judgment. And that's bad news for every sinner. And yet the one who fears God recognizes that God has made provision for that day. 
through the Son of God. And that's why the psalmist in Psalm 130 verse 4 says, With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You see, it begins with forgiveness of sins. That comes through the substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the fear of God. And that's the, the psalmist says is the path of blessing. But since the fall, we don't naturally think that way, do we? In Genesis 3, the, the serpent came to the first couple. And essentially he said, if you want blessing, you need to go rogue. That's basically what he told them. Because God is holding out on you. You need to go rogue. And so he deliberately separated holiness and blessing. Fear of God and happiness. And that has prevailed in the human heart ever since. Maybe you remember that 1977 song by Billy Joel, Only the, the Good Die Young. And, and, and there's this famous line from that, that song, I would rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints because sinners are much more fun. And the psalmist is reuniting holiness and happiness that was divorced in the fall. Indeed, verse 2, notice, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed. That is those who fear him, which is an Old Testament way of trusting in him and his provision. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Now, Psalm 127 told us that everything we do will be vain unless the Lord builds it. We saw that, didn't we? Unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor or who, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. But here in Psalm 128, if we fear God, nothing will be vain. That's good news for us. The one who fears God, even the most mundane work will be blessed, will be fruitful. Now, we may not see that fruit immediately. We will see some fruit. We will not always see all the fruit of our hands that God gives some fruit comes after you die. How many people in here have been impacted by those who have already died and they continue to impact you to this day? In other words, faithful parents, grandparents, faithful mentors who have longed gone to glory, but they continue to bear fruit in your life. They don't see that fruit. Maybe God gives them a glimpse in heaven. We don't know. How about all the great missionaries in church history who saw very little fruit in their particular mission and lives, but through the centuries, their faithfulness has continued to bear fruit. God is promising those who fear him, even in the most mundane labors, there will be fruit. Genesis 3.19, we were condemned to eat bread by the sweat of our brows. And here, the psalmist is saying, even though work is 
continues to be necessary, the curse is turned into a blessing. And that's true for students as well who, who work in their studies and academics. It's the ones who fear God who, who bear fruit, the psalmist says. Well, that brings us to the second part of this passage. We see the blessed life, and that in turn issues into the, the blessed family, which is really the, the place, the, the primary place where God's blessings are worked out. Notice in verse 3, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. So this is an inclusio. Verse 4 and verse 1 are essentially saying the same thing. And so everything within those two brackets are supporting his arguments in verses 1 and 4. Thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. Now, Psalm 128 is not promising a utopia. Uh, this functions like a, a wisdom psalm. Um, in other words, it's a truism. In other words, though there are children of godly parents who rebel, and I know godly parents in this room who have children who are still in rebellion, and there are wives of godly husbands who don't flourish. As a rule, as a rule, the person who is God-fearing, walking in his ways, will be blessed with a God-fearing family. Psalm 128 is taking us back to Eden before the fall certainly taking us to the new Eden in the consummation. But notice this, your wife will be like a fruitful vine in your house. This was an agrarian culture. They, the psalmist would have assumed cultural competency, and, and he would have been writing to people who recognized that without fruit, the people perish. And, and so fruitfulness is an important um, concept in that day. And here the wife is the fruitful vine. Now, fruitfulness in Scripture generally refers to one to three things. First of all, it describes godliness. I think that's in play here. It also describes happiness. I think that's in play here. And it also describes children. A wife who has children, bears children. I think that's in play here. God's blessing will attend to her life, the wife, and she will know the fullness of God's favor. Generally, when a man is serious about God, it has a trickle-down effect. That's the way it works. You will rarely see, though you do, again, there's always outliers. You will rarely see a godly man in church whose wife isn't with him. Now, you see wives, godly wives, whose husbands stay home. It's not true at Lakeview, praise the Lord, but I've read a stat where 25% of married women in churches in America come to church alone. 
But you'll rarely see that with a godly husband because of the trickle-down effect. The reason God has called men to be spiritual leaders in the church is because in God's design, it's not that women aren't important. They're just as important as men. They're equally the image of God. They're just as important to the local church. But God has designed men to lead, and it has a trickle-down effect. And that's why fatherlessness, which is a growing epidemic, not just in America, but in the world, is so tragic. In fact, fatherlessness is unprecedented today in our world. In 1964, get this, I read this this week in a book that I've been reading by Sharon James. And she says that in 1964, only four small countries, Austria, Latvia, Latvia, Iceland, and Sweden had more than 10% of children born out of wedlock. Only four countries in the world. By 2016, more than 60% of children are born out of wedlock in 25 countries. 25 countries. A further 20 countries, including Belgium, Denmark, and Norway and Sweden, all have more than 50% of children born outside of marriage. In America today, it's 40%, up from 28% in 1990. Now, for our single mothers, maybe you're a single mother because your husband died, your, the father of your children died, or maybe you're a single mother because the husband forsook his post. We love you. And we respect you. We honor you. You are staying the course with your children. And you're in your situation by no fault of your own. We pray for you. And I pray that Lakeview will be everything you need us to be in this challenge. And God is going to give you grace. But this text is giving us the ideal. Okay? And the man of Psalm 128 verses 1 and 2, who fears God and walks in his ways, generally has a, a verse 3 wife, a fruitful vine as a wife. But what kind of children spawn from that kind of man and from that kind of marriage? Well, in Psalm 127, verse 4, the children are like arrows that godly parents shoot out. Here, they are olive shoots. Again, we, the psalmist is assuming cultural competency. The olive tree is quite remarkable. If, if you do a study of, of the olive tree, they grow very s slowly, and, and olives don't generally begin to appear Fruit doesn't appear for three to seven years, but in favorable conditions, an olive tree can live over a thousand years. It has long reaching fruit. It bears fruit for a long time, maybe longer than any other fruit producing plant or tree. 
I think the psalmist here is being intentional when he describes these children as olive shoots. Godly families are God's strategy. In other words, this speaks to the multi-generational effects of the godly family and godly children. And again, I want you to note the emphasis on the nuclear family. There's a strong emphasis on the nuclear family in the Bible. It is God's design and plan and strategy for the world. And that's why it should not surprise us that the family has been under attack since Adam married Eve. The devil didn't even show up until he got married. And since then, his central attack has been on the home. Let me give you a couple of names, probably names you've never heard of, but you need to be aware of these names. In fact, they've been long dead, but they're, they continue to bear wicked fruit. There are two names I want to give you. We could give you others to show you that what we see in our culture today didn't happen in a vacuum. It was actually a planned out strategy. The first name is Antonio Gramsci. He, in fact, he died in 1937, but he continues to bear wicked fruit. He was an Italian Marxist um, who argued that oppressed people must be set free from the main instruments of oppression. And he, says there, he said that there were two main instruments of oppression. What do you think they are? The church and the family, the nuclear family. And he says the only way to undo these two instruments of oppression is through the long and patient march through our institutions. In other words, we've got, to, we've got to capture the institutions if we're going to undo these instruments of oppression, the church and the family. The second name is a man named Herbert Marcuse. He died in 1979. He was the leading voice and the face of what is known as the Frankfurt School. Have you ever heard of critical theory? That was birthed out of the Frankfurt School, and he was the leading voice and the face of the Frankfurt School. It was a Marxist study center founded in 1923. He was, in fact, the guru and the inspiration for all the protest movements, student protest movements of the 1960s. He's the inspiration and the guru of the new left and its war on education on religion, and on family that you really begin to see happen in the 1960s. His legacy was to undermine confidence in objective truth. And that's why you have so-called scholars with PhDs who claim that men can have babies. It's, it's utter chaos. Or that biological Girls can be boys, or biological boys can be girls. That is the wicked fruit of Marquise. It's why we have many who believe that children don't need a father and a mother. They can have two mothers or, or two fathers. On Mother's Day, I referenced Kate Millett of Columbia 
University and Columbia University has had a massive role in, in this unsettling of, of the home. And she is the really representative of this um, cultural Marxism that we see in our culture. And she said 1969, just to review, that we have to have a cultural revolution. And the way to do that is by destroying the American family. And that by destroying the American patriarch. Who's the patriarch? Dad. And that by taking away his power. And that by destroying monogamy. And that, get this, by promoting promiscuity and eroticism. If you're watching pornography today, you have bought into the plan and you need to repent. You can bat a thousand on pornography. You can bat a thousand. God has given you the resources to bat a thousand in Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And through this eroticism and through this plan, this woman said, we have to invade every American institution. The judiciary, legislatures, executive branches, the media, universities, K through 12, and get this. This is relevant to our time in Auburn, and this was 1969, the libraries. God help us. Auburn is just playing into her strategy. Gramsci and Marcuse's influence can hardly be exaggerated. Contrast that with the psalmist here who sees that the central sign of God's blessing on a people is godly nuclear families. Keep in mind that the reference here to children as a sign of God's blessing does not mean that if you're a single, that you're not under the blessing of God. God has a plan and a strategy for you. It may include children down the road, may not. Or if you're a husband and wife and, and, and you can't have biological children, it does not mean that you're not under the blessing of God. These are general truisms. This is God's general pattern. And so if you're single and you're a godly person who, who desires the blessing of God in this way, there's ways of being fruitful. If you're a husband and a wife and you can't have biological children, maybe God's calling you to adopt. Or maybe he's uh, calling you to engage in the foster care system. And certainly we know he has called every Christian to have spiritual sons and daughters. I love 1 Timothy 1 where Paul uh, calls Timothy his true child in the faith. Paul wasn't married. Paul didn't have biological children, but he had a true child in the faith in Timothy. So these are general truisms. When God is blessing a people, you will see godly husbands, godly wives, and godly children. And verses 1 and 4 function as inspired bookends. The blessed man is flourishing in his family and his work. That's the good life. That's the good life. And it's God's strategy. That brings us 
to the blessed benediction. The last two verses of our passage. The Lord bless you from Zion. You could literally translate that. May the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Grandparenting is a blessing from God. You see that? Peace be upon Israel. So let's break this down. Uh, Zion. We don't know what the word Zion means. We don't know its origin. We know the first time it's seen is in 2 Samuel 5 when David took the Jebusite stronghold, which is Jerusalem, and it was evidently named Zion before he took it. But it, it began to take on a meaning, a twofold meaning, if you will, in the scriptures. First of all, you have the, the heavenly Zion. That, that's God's throne room in heaven where he rules, where his authority is communicated through the agency of his king, King Jesus. But then you see his earthly Zion is his, his earthly temple in Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, it was Jerusalem. It was in one place. It was in Jerusalem. That's the earthly Zion. And so Zion is the seat of God's sovereign rule and covenantal presence and authority. Think of this analogy. So the seat of authority in the United States is Washington, D.C. But there are 163, okay, embassies throughout the world. And what, what do these embassies represent? The rule of the United States government on foreign soil, okay? In that day, there was one embassy, one spiritual embassy. It was Jerusalem. And that's where God's rule was manifest through the agency of the king. Of course, today, there are many spiritual embassies. The local church is, is dotted throughout the world representing the throne room authority of God. But just think about these people. They would have made their way to Jerusalem, which was their earthly Zion, where they would engage in corporate worship. They would sing his praises. They would hear God's word preached, and God would bless them from earthly Zion, corporate worship. But the source of that blessing was traced back to God in heaven. You see, what the psalmist is, is communicating to us is you can't divide the blessings of God on a family from corporate worship. If you're seeking blessing on your sons and daughters outside of corporate worship, you're seeking a curse costumed as a blessing. All right? Now, there are legitimate shut-ins. We love our shut-ins. We pray for our shut-ins. But many people who claim to be Christians aren't shut in. They just have different priorities on Sunday morning. Corporate worship is God's design to bless the family. And notice, he says, peace be upon Israel. How will shalom come upon Israel? Yes, it will come by God, but through godly families engaging in corporate worship. This is God's strategy to reverse the curse. It's his only strategy. 
Now, let me qualify that. The godly family is not the effective means to reverse the curse. All right? The godly family essentially is just a part of a mop-up operation because the curse has already been reversed. It was reversed at the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to reverse the curse. That's how much he wants you to be blessed. That he's willing to absorb the debt of our wrath, his wrath on our sin in his son to recreate the world and raise it from the dead and restore, get this, the wonders, the glories of Eden on a multiplied scale, all bought and paid for by his son's blood. That's how much he wants you to be blessed. So to be blessed begins with God removing the curse upon our sin, taking it to himself in his son. You know, it's interesting as we come to the table. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16, the apostle Paul in describing the Lord's table, he calls it the cup of blessing. Is that ironic language or what? 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing. Especially when you consider what that cup represents. It represents the wrath that the Lord Jesus Christ absorbed that we might receive blessing. Paul calls it the cup of blessing. And the Lord Jesus Christ drank the curse so that we might be blessed. And so ultimately to be blessed is to be brought back to God as sons and daughters. Now that's a Father's Day to remember. We have a a Father in the Creator, Redeemer of the universe brought back to Him through His Son and given assurance of His love and peace of conscience. And joy from the Holy Spirit, an increase in grace, perseverance to the end, all bought and paid for by the Son of God, who came that he might pronounce a blessing on those who would fear him. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time, or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, We want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.